Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of the Beyond Busy podcast, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and happiness and success. This is episode 10, the last episode in the first series of Beyond Busy, and this one features Ayanna Coleman. She's the founder of a literary agency called Quill Shift, and this interview was recorded on my recent trip to New York. So it's been quite a busy time in the shed, busy time at Think Productive. And um, one of the things that's been going on is I've had Harry in the shed with me. So Harry's an intern from Sussex Uni. Uh, Before you ask, all our interns are paid the living wage, the proper living wage. And uh, what he's been doing is loads of research on some of the topics around the Beyond Busy book. So, you know, looking at success and goal setting and and uh, distraction and various other things like that. So we've been getting excited and uh, talking about lots of very interesting ideas, which I think will really start to, to shape this, this book project uh, that this podcast is obviously related to. Uh, he's also been finding me some really cool guests. Thanks to Harry, we had an interview lined up with uh, Jon Snow, the Channel 4 newsreader, broadcasting legend. And unfortunately, he got called to the States um, something to do with a really awful man threatening to run the entire world uh so yeah he's now back and uh, we're trying to get that one back on for september although i did actually bump into john uh, this weekend at the womad festival and found myself in a field with john snow egging each other on to sing the entire ugandan national anthem so that was quite a surreal moment uh, and I've got a really exciting political one lined up for the first episode of series two. Uh, not going to mention names because that's kind of tempting fate, isn't it? But um, yeah, if you uh, obviously listen to episode one of series two, you'll find out who. And uh, if you at the same time have other people you'd really like me to interview. So either people that you know, that preferably people that you know, actually. Like if you know people and you can do me an intro and you think they'd make a really good podcast guest then uh, drop me an email it's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk so i've saved this one up for the last episode of series one um this is a really good one i really enjoyed this conversation so this was on my trip to new york back in april i sat down with ayanna coleman she's as i said before the founder of quill shift and it's a literary agency which focuses on helping black and minority ethnic authors to just navigate their way in the publishing world. And I guess the ultimate aim is making children's books more diverse and more relevant from, uh, you know, for kids of ethnic minority backgrounds. And as the dad of a mixed race bookworm kid, uh, I can really vouch that it's a really important mission. You know, you see so many books where uh, all the characters are white and there's really no sort of emphasis on diversity and, and giving young people of colour good role models. So I think it's a, it's a really fantastic organisation that she is... Uh, the founder of and you know really driving and and really setting up what's really interesting about Ayanna as well is that she's building this business alongside a full-time job which is also in publishing and she's working really long hours and juggling the two and you know I I, um, spend a lot of time uh, uh, sort of thinking about this I think the uh, the sort of Gary Vaynerchuk idea of doing the nine to five and then doing the five to nine on the side and you know Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about hustle And I think, you know, that can be great advice as a way to set up a new business whilst maintaining an income, you know, and reducing the risk of of setting up that new business. But I also think it's a pretty dangerous and unsustainable philosophy as well. And, you know, particularly if you don't have purpose, which Anna, of course, 
truly does in the work that she's doing. And I think sometimes those those hours can really push someone towards burnout. So this is a really interesting conversation. We talk about that. We talk about how to get that right balance, being the best version of you, self-care, shifting gears and lots, lots more. So uh, I was staying in Brooklyn when we were having this conversation. So it's quite difficult to try and arrange somewhere to meet. And I'd come straight from a, a speaking gig at a consultancy firm right in the middle of Manhattan. Anna was in town, so she kindly arranged uh, to book a meeting room for us at the New York Public Library. Um, So you join us here in this quite remarkable little oasis of calm right in the middle of midtown Manhattan, Madison Avenue. And we're straight in here with Anna telling us the backstory of what led her to the idea to set up Quill Shift. I um, had a kind of winding path into the publishing industry. I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be uh, a part of the bookmaking process specifically for children, but I'm from the Midwest and everybody told me that publishing was in New York and so I had to get there Um, and I didn't quite know how. So I I meandered and I did lots of different things um, through my academic career and I landed in New York and um, I landed a fabulous job at the Children's Book Council where I had the honor of working with some amazing uh, people in publishing Uh, and a few of them actually had started this group already that was focused on bringing in more diverse books um, into the children's publishing industry and they contacted the Children's Book Council to see if we could um, help them kind of expand their group and give it some structure and so the CBC Diversity Committee was formed um, and two years of liaising and planning events and things for the CBC Diversity Committee um, and listening to the conversations and really trying to understand what the points of contention and misunderstanding were when it came to creating diverse books and um, bringing in people from outside the industry into the industry um, who are from underrepresented backgrounds to support those books and where do those books come from and they come from agents and agents um, you know sell them to editors and the first couple of years it was very much uh, well if this or if that uh, and I heard a lot of well I'm not seeing those projects because the agents aren't giving them to me they're right. not showing them yeah. to me and I had been reading for agencies for like the past four years I knew that agenting was something that I eventually wanted to get into um, and I saw that this was a place in the market that needed someone who um, was a person of color who had the experience of working in the publishing industry to a you know certain extent as well as having um, librarianship experience in the children's book world that I could do this and even though I didn't know how to run a company and and you know, I had I worked for agencies um, in to a certain extent, um, but I thought this is my time, and I was scared, and I probably wasn't ready to start my own company, but I knew that it was really, really important, and I wanted to make that difference. I think the best entrepreneurs entrepreneurs are never ready to start their own company, right? Because it's like there's a problem I need to solve, yes. so let's get started. <laughs> um, so, in terms of uh, that picture that you paint there, mm-hmm. of it just. It feels like there's a sort of structural imbalance, or there's a reason why the editors are not they're not coming across the right kind of writers and the right kind of books. Do you think that's a problem in terms of the supply? Like, do you think there historically hasn't been enough people of color getting into writing and coming up with those kind of books, or is it more about the sort of almost like the demand side? So the writers are there, but they're just not 
moving in the right circles and not finding the right people and not getting into the right places? What, where, where do you see the, the sort of root cause of it? Oh gosh, the root cause. <laughs> That's really hard because I think that both things are true. Um, I think that there there are a lot of great writers out there um, who may not be coming through the traditional channels. And I also think that uh, for the publishing industry, you have to go outside of the traditional channels to find those writers. Uh, but they may not be as groomed necessarily as the, the ones who are coming from those traditional channels. So making sure that the writing programs are accessible uh, to yeah. uh, minorities. To the making sure that you have um, people from underrepresented backgrounds working in the publishing industry, so that they can identify or help identify with certain protagonists that uh, a Caucasian editor might not, and that's okay. But to dismiss. Uh, because that identification isn't um, immediate is uh, something that I feel like has been happening historically. And I think now, especially with a few different movements in the publishing industry, people are waking up a little bit. Um, I believe that there are editors who have been working tirelessly for decades, um, and they are the mentors for those who are still in the industry and coming up in the industry to kind of take notice and, and take notes. And do you feel like it's changing now? I mean, do you feel like that that, that change is starting to happen? I do. I, I feel like more people are paying attention. I feel like more people are kind of up in arms about it. Mm. I feel like it's not just the publishing industry. It is, you know, the library industry right. and it's the book selling industry. It's, it's all of the different factors that come together to get a book into the hands of a child. Um, and we all need to work together to make sure that we're promoting all different types of voices. Where does the school system come into this as well? I mean, you know, in terms of promoting both reading for pleasure, but also mm -hmm. textbooks as well, right? Like, is that, you know, like, is there not a pull from from that side to get a more diverse range of authors around? That's a great question. I'm, I am more familiar with the um, library world and the booksellers world because that's who I worked with when mm -hmm. I was at the Children's Book Council. Um, how and, and as a librarian, um, however, there are certainly lots of teacher organizations that are kind of shouting, we are teaching these students and we don't have books to represent these students. So where are these books? And then, of course, you have the publishing industry saying, like, we've published these and here are these over here. And, you know, why aren't you buying them in droves then? Because they're here and we want to produce more. Um, but there needs to be kind of that demand to yeah. produce more. Yeah. So it's making sure that the buyers are actually buying so that the publishers can produce more. Absolutely. Um, what's quite remarkable about uh, what you're doing with Quillshift is that you're doing this alongside doing a full-time job as well. Right? Yes. So yes. Uh, what's, your, what's your day job? <laughs> my day job. Yes, my um, my full-time job, and I've always had a full-time job with Cold yeah. Shift, um, is now, after I think it's been you know six weeks since I've started, I am the director of marketing at Tanglewood Publishing, which is the home of you know wonderful authors like Audrey Penn, who's a New York Times bestseller for her book, The Kissing Hand, um, Mike Mullen, who has the Asheville series, and um, another one is Ashley Fletcher, who wrote My Dog, My Cat, and was an ice Award shortlist 
author. So um, I do the marketing for Tanglewood during the day and then um, at night and in the early morning and on the weekends, um, I read manuscripts and I manage interns and I you know, do the marketing for Quillshift and go to conferences and speak on panels and, and promote the fact that there's someone out there and there are many people out there but you know me as an individual i can say i'm here looking for diverse authors and diverse storylines cool um so you're a busy lady <laughs> <laughs> um i'd love to just talk about that a bit more specifically so you, you said that evenings weekends mm-hmm. like do you have a sort of structure around how cool shift works around your day job and just yeah and like just how you set that up mm-hmm. When I first started Quill Shift, which was, um, I always say like late 2013, but I didn't really start taking on clients until the beginning, mid 2014. But of course, a business doesn't start with taking on clients. A business starts with, um, you know, doing the paperwork and sure. creating the website and figuring out who you are as a company. And so, um, in late 2013 is when I started, and I, I was still working a full time job then, and I would. Um, I would wake up at around six in the morning on Saturdays and Sundays, and then I would work until try and work until about noon, and then I'd have to shut off because right. um, I still needed to recharge because I still had you know a full week ahead of me, and I was working up or waking up early to work out, and then do two hours of quill shift before I left for work, and then try and do two hours of quill shift when I got home from work, and then still have like two hours to decompress. At night. Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was always trying to make sure that I had the relaxation time, and of course, it didn't always happen, um, but to stave the burnout phase. Yeah, so tell me, tell me about a, a sort of typical day during the week. So at the mm-hmm. weekend, you're getting up and, and doing a, a really chunky shift <laughs> on a Saturday and Sunday, but like, what t- so what time would you need to be out of bed, and what time is the two hours that you do mm-hmm. before work? So recently I've been getting up at 5.40 in the morning so that I can do yoga and eat breakfast. And then I kind of sit down at around 6.30 and from 6.30 to 8.30 is when I get out my kind of most important emails and set my day up um, for Quill Shift. And then at around 8.30 I switch over to Tanglewood and um, then from 8.30 until 5. I do Tanglewood stuff. And then at around 5.30, I switch back over to Quill Shift, and um, I work on that for maybe another couple of hours. Yeah. And then I, I sign off. <laughs> wow. And I think there's probably lots of people who listen to this who just, they work in a job that doesn't give them the ability to clock in at 8.30 and clock off at 5. Mm-hmm. And they probably do those extra hours, but it feels like there's something in addition there mentally around not just working longer hours, but having to switch in and out of those different modes and kind of juggling and, mm-hmm. and all of that. How does, how does Tanglewood, like they presumably knew about Quill Shift when you were hired. So what's their view on it? And do they have a, you know, are they really accommodating? Does it annoy them? Like what's their, what's their take on it? <laughs> no, 
I, I, I hope it doesn't annoy them. No, my uh, my publisher Peggy is amazing, and when she, we've known each other for years, um, she was on one of the first committees that I liaised on for the CBC, and we knew that we worked really well together. And so when the stars, you know, aligned, and I was able to come over and work for Tanglewood Publishing, um, she realized that I had a lot of great experience from my time at the Children's Book Council, from my time I, I did a short stint as a director of development for a nonprofit in New York, um, for doing doing all the things that I do with Quill Shift, um, that I would be able to put that in to Tanglewood. So she sees it as an asset. Um, and you know the great thing is is that I do get to work from home, so I'm able to structure my time in a very smart way. I don't have to you know take 30 minutes to go to the office and then 30 minutes right, to come home. Right. It's like okay, at night before I go to bed, I make my priority list so that when I wake up the next morning, I know what I need to check off. And do you work from home every day? I do. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that perhaps gives you a little flexibility a bit of flexibility mm -hmm. and not having the travel in there and, and exactly all that. So, mm -hmm. but it sounds like if you're also going out to conferences and presumably meetings and mm -hmm. so there's still a fair amount of travel and that sort of time involved true I mean that's one of the things that I look for in every job that I take on I love connecting with people I love talking with people and um being a director of marketing, that's what I need to do. I need right. to go out there and I need to network and I need to talk to people. So that's a big part of the job as well as with Quillship. And uh, I've, I've heard on the grapevine that you're like an uber networker, like a su <laughs> super networker as I've heard. I really enjoy <laughs> meeting new people. <laughs> I do. Uh, what, are you, what are your, uh, what's your philosophy around networking? What, what makes you a good networker? What's, what's your secret? Listening, I think. Um, I go into any meeting with a new person or an old acquaintance, um, professional contact or friend, and um, I'm really excited to see them and I'm really excited to hear their story. So I believe when people realize that, that you are actively listening to them, they really want to stay in touch with you, they really want to get to know you and um, keep contact open. Yeah, and I think it's such a common thing is that in networking, people approach it with both of their eyes focused on what do they want out of the situation, mm -hmm. right? Whereas, like, I think my my sort of philosophy around that has been if you approach it by how can you help, and exactly. then they'll tell you how they can help you. Yeah, right? they want to. They want to. They want to reciprocate, and so it's always nice to kind of put that all branch out there first, right? Yeah. And be, be like, yeah. I'm here to like you said, see how I can help you and see how we can help one another, um, making that a mutually beneficial relationship. I think that I, besides networking, I really like connecting. Mm. So um, first you have to meet that person and figure out what makes them tick and what makes them happy and where they want to go. And then you take that one step further and say, who do I know that I can connect this person with? And that's a really rewarding experience to be able to make those connections. I, I almost like prefer connecting to yeah. networking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, I'm really big on that because I just feel like it's, A, it's something I can do from my desk and it's kind of easy. <laughs> and B, it's like it's kind of within the spotting the ideas and all that. And then I forget I've done it. And then people six months later go, oh, I went and did an event for this company. And it's like, you put me in touch. I'm like, 
Oh, did I? Oh, okay. Like that was I have a friend that does sick. that too. Yeah. She and and she asked me. She's like, "Does that make me a bad connector? Like, does that make me a bad person to not remember the connections?" And I was like, "No, it actually I think it speaks very highly of you because you're not doing it for like the fame and glory of connecting someone. You're doing it because you just want them to meet and then you take yourself out of the equation. I think that's fabulous." I just have the idea. It's the whole thing of like, "Oh, I've just come up with like how to put these two and two together yeah. and make five I just I, I always <laughs> just get a thrill from doing that um, so it sounds like with your with the, the day job and then the business and trying to manage all of that and you've got an employer that sees that as like a coincidence of interests not a conflict of interests exactly right? um, how does it sit with you like do you have times when you're uh, you're doing the day job and you're thinking oh I wish I could talk to this person more from a Quill shift perspective. Well, I've got this thing for a quill shift that I really want to do right now, but it's two in the <laughs> afternoon, and that's not the hours that quill shift gets not and stuff. Like, does it? Do you have an internal sort of tension around having to wear those two hats the whole time? Always. Um, that is one thing that I've struggled with from the very beginning of quill shift is loving the fact that I am in the industry from one perspective and hating the fact that I have to wear these two hats and mm. really balance and figure out all the time when is it appropriate, when is it okay to switch hats. It's it's definitely a struggle, but I also know that um, you know being professional and being grateful and courteous to you know this fabulous company that I get to work for and work with to promote their books is um, it's a pleasure and yeah. so really I it's only been six months or six weeks but um, I haven't really had any warring decisions <laughs> between right. cool shift and tanglewood it's really been a I'm really focused on learning as much as I can and connecting these people um, in this way for tanglewood and then because I've been doing cool shift for two and a half years I kind of have my systems in place I already have my network I already know who I need to contact so it, it has so far been a pretty good balance it seems like a really smart move to uh, put the two things in the same space, right? So you could very easily do a very different kind of day job and then have course shift on the side. But like having something where there is just that that relationship where you bring something from course shift, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to the day job and then vice versa. It kind of that that for me feels like a, a smart move in terms of <laughs> wanting to set something up and then being in that same headspace. I almost went into a different industry um, recently, and it was definitely a question that I had for myself. Do I want to leave publishing? Um, but at the same time, the other role that I was looking at, it would still be kind of drawing off of a lot of the things that I've learned while doing Cool Shift. Mm. Uh, so even if it wasn't in book publishing, I still would be that connector. I still would be going out and meeting people and telling them about something that I absolutely love and this is why they need to be a part of it. Uh, so I, there would still be some some balancing to do, but Quill Shift would be a part of it. Absolutely. Um, tell me about switching off. So the idea after I've had a long week... <laughs> of waking up on a Saturday morning and having to do almost like another shift of work again and do the same on Sunday and then still feel replenished and rested and ready to go on the Monday morning. Like I, at times in my career, have worked long hours, but I've always tried to maintain at least a sort of element of weekend. That's, that's the bit mm. that for me feels quite fascinating and feels quite quite difficult. Like it feels difficult for me to picture how I would deal with that so like 
how do you make sure that you do switch off and like is there a uh, is there a real downside to those those week, the weekend shifts in particular? It's not easy. <laughs> I it took me a while to understand really what switching off was because for the first year and a half I was all in and I was trying to ramp up this business and get it out there and convince people that it's important and this needs to happen and you know I'm the right person to be in this space doing it and there is a lot of anxiety um, and so it was very much like 24-7 I was trying to think of things and my mind was yeah. always on and even if I took a break I was still thinking about quill shift. I was still thinking about what I needed to do to get ahead and to be better and to be a part of the scene um, that was going on around me. And then, you know, six months later, I had my friends and my family kind of be like, you need a break. Mm. You need to stop and breathe and calm down because tomorrow's another day. That's something that my mom always says. Tomorrow's another day you have tomorrow to do it. So do as much as you can. Don't kill yourself because you're the person who cares most about this. No one else is going to care as much as you. So don't kill yourself and you can do it tomorrow. I said this to someone the other day who uh, was, I just got chatting to, and of course I'm here chatting productivity and productivity ninja. So she was really keen to uh, pick my brains about her startup. And I had this three or four minute conversation where I was like, so, and how's it going? How's the startup going? <laughs> And I could just see in her face this almost like, you know, when you say something to a kid and their bottom lip trembles, <laughs> and it was body language yeah. that was that, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, you're really stressed and overloaded right now. Let's talk productivity in that way. And we were having this conversation and the end of the conversation was me saying to her, do you know what? Like what you're doing is really important and the world needs you at your optimum for 20 years, not you burning out in two. Exactly. Right? And I just think that is... I've certainly been there. I've been that person mm -hmm. that, like, the world is burning. I need to do it all right now. Um, but I think you also, like, I, th I think you can also only do that for so long before right. you start to burn up. Right. Um, so after kind of multiple sit-downs with close family and friends who 150% support what hmm. I'm doing and the fact that I'm, I still have a full-time day job yeah. and I'm, you know, starting this as well, uh, I decided that I really needed to make sure that I had the weekend time to myself. So now it's just kind of like one day. So Saturday for X amount of hours, I am plugged in and doing what I need to do. But Sunday is my complete kind of day okay. off and I can still think about things and I can still write things down. And obviously like Sunday night is a time where I'm writing my to-do list like a mad person. <laughs> um, but having that, like you said, that kind of one day yeah. that you don't feel guilty and guilt is a huge thing that I am still kind of, uh, dealing with is you don't feel guilty for not doing, mm -hmm. um, and you have to embrace the moment so that you do recharge. And what does, what does home look like? Cause I think <laughs> that's a big part of guilt, right? Yes. Um, home. So I, I have two homes, right? I have my home in Manhattan that I love with my fiance, who is the happiest person I know. And <laughs> I'm just like, why aren't you ever stressed? Because I am always stressed. And he takes my stress away. And then I feel guilty for that. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm from Illinois. I'm from the Midwest. And so my mom and my dad and my brother are there. And they are 
so accomplished and um, so centered and they they are my rocks so you know I talk to them bi-weekly and um, they still give me advice to this day and I, I treasure them so they are my heart is is there as well do you feel like I certainly feel this when I go back to where my parents live it it's just a town that moves slower than a big city, right? Um, do you feel that? Like when you get, it's like a change of gear almost when you get home and spend some time at home. I was so excited to leave Champaign, Illinois, to get to New York. <laughs> I and, and like the main reason was that people walk faster here. Like yeah, I was, right. I was ready to go. Um, and the first time I visited my parents again, and I went back. I like twirled around in the middle of the driveway. I like laid on the grass and I was like, you can do this here. This is so nice. I looked up at the big blue sky um, and, and I felt a weight lift uh, because you're around people who just let you be and you're in a place that, you know, home for me was a very safe, comforting, supportive place. So definitely a switch of gear, but a great one. Mm. And so in Manhattan, like your fiance is very supportive of what you're doing, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you said there, like he takes your stress away. Um, so uh, I'd love to know what he does as well, but what, make, what makes <laughs> him so uh, centered and happy? And like, because you, you almost said that as if you feel like it's a bit freaky that he's so it happy. It is. And, uh, it is. Uh, so what does he do, first of all? He's an electrical engineer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he... I think we talked about this um, recently, stoicism and, and the, mm. the, uh, the kind of theory of stoicism. And he was like, I kind of, I relate to this. And he is just the type of person who, if he knows he, he, can't, do, he can't do anything or he, he's not able to do anything about the situation, then he just lets it go. If he, if he cannot change it, then why worry about it? Um, and he, you know, he kind of moves through life in that way. And I find that so interesting because I don't like to think that I can't change a situation like Mm. by pure will and determination I will be able to move this mountain type of thing and it's and I've been able to in a lot of situations so his just kind of like it's fine like don't stress about it don't worry about it it's not healthy like just let it be it infuriates me but at the same time um, it gives me space to get to where he is yeah and in terms of that the working weekends and the guilt mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So do you feel guilty that you presumably don't have like loads of weekends away or like three day <laughs> breaks and that sort of thing? Like, is that something that you uh, feel guilty about? And also do you have like a set, is there like a set period of time over which, okay, that's my deadline. That's when things are going to change. That's when things are going to calm down a bit. There are ebbs and flows of, of work. I mean, it's really nice that at Tanglewood, um, you know, there's there are seasons in the publishing industry, and then for Quill Shift, it's it's really my decision on how many authors I take on, and because it's just me and I still have a full time job, I'd say it's a very boutique literary agency who focuses on you know these types of authors and these types of stories, and I have the option of only taking on one or two authors a year to make sure that I don't 
make myself go crazy because I'm an editorial agent. So I do a lot of editing with my authors and you know, that is because I want to make sure that it's in the best condition to submit to an editor at a publishing house, but also because my authors aren't coming with loads of background and experience with, um, you know, in the writing world. So I want to make sure that they have the strongest foundation possible to get them to, you know, where they want to be, which is Mm -hmm. a published author. Uh, and that takes time and that takes a lot of provisions. So it's, it's a, like, you know, it's a balance, like I keep saying of figuring out the workload with full time and the, uh, side job and making sure that it, it does what it needs to do so that I can have those breaks. And how many authors do you have right now that you're working with? I have six. Six. And uh, do you have... So I, I think my own, my own experience as an author mm-hmm. is that authors can be quite demanding. <laughs> uh, so, and particularly if you've got people who are perhaps coming into this as a new venture and it's like, a, you know, like you say, you're kind of... Uh, what's the phrase you use? Like editorial author. So mm-hmm. you're kind of... Editorial, editorial agent. agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're... Uh, you're helping them th- almost like orientate with the industry and like how to how to present the manuscript in the right kind of way and how to talk to the publishers in certain ways and exactly. things like that. Right? So like that presumably is uh, a sort of ongoing, uh, almost like being a counsellor or something. Like almost yes. you know you're constantly sort of helping people through those sort of alien and new situations. Right? Definitely, I, I feel like most agents these days do the exact same thing. There are debut authors all the time who don't know the publishing industry, and so your agent is your friend who and business partner, really, who mm. takes you through it. And that relationship is so very important, and there yeah. needs to be a lot of trust and, and kind of counsel there to go from point A to point B to point C. <laughs> So back to Ayanna in a few moments. What a wise lady, eh? It really struck me that um, for someone who's so driven, she really has a lot to say and puts a lot of thought into issues around balance and self-care and self-awareness. And uh, I think that can be quite rare. I really feel like there were times in my own working life where I've been really engaged in work, really felt like I was on a personal mission. And I think at the same time, I was probably quite a bad friend, a shit husband, a shit brother, you know, and probably neglected my own self-care quite a lot in those moments as well. So just really remarkable just to sort of hear her take on that and just how much thought she clearly puts into some of those subjects and, and you know, just making sure that she has that sense of balance, even when things are so busy. So as I said before, Harry uh, has been doing an internship with me, just focusing on a few different topics and really helping me to work up some ideas for the book. And we spent a lot lot of time in the shed getting excited by lots of different ideas. And I think, I guess what the research has really taught me so far and what these podcasts are teaching me so far is that the idea of this book is super ambitious. So, you know, to to really talk about and comment on uh, how people find happiness and success and how work-life balance and productivity can either help or hinder that. I mean, it's kind of like, what is the meaning of life? You know, like, so it kind of feels like a very daunting book and uh, one that I feel very personal towards. And I really feel like I have something to say on, on these topics, but I also feel like it's uh, uh, a really ambitious thing. So I guess I'm kind of playing around with the idea at the moment of would it be the worst thing in the world if I was sat here in three years still doing the podcast, still talking a lot about this book and probably having written other books in the meantime 
but would that be the worst scenario in the world? And I think probably a few years ago, I'd have been thinking, you know, come on, Graham, like put a deadline towards it. And I'd have really beat myself up about making that happen on a set schedule. And maybe that's, you know, I'm kind of realizing that's part of my learning is learning to be kinder to myself around some of these things and letting the work kind of do its thing. Let let the work breathe, let the work develop in, and it, on its own schedule and, and in its own time. And so I'm kind of feeling like it's quite op- up in the air at the moment. And I think what's nice about that is everything else feels like it's in pretty good shape. The business is in good shape. Lots of speaking gigs booking in for autumn and poor Caitlin, Caitlin my assistant we're uh, planning this trip to New Zealand and Australia which is going to be in November and she has the job of booking in all these ridiculous little internal flights between Wellington and Auckland and Adelaide and all these places so it's uh, uh, yeah it's uh, you know she's spending a lot of time on that at the moment and uh, you know it's an, it's an exciting plan coming together and speaking of which if you're in New Zealand or Australia I will be doing a public workshop somewhere near you so uh, details can be found in the next few weeks on grahamalcott.com and uh, in the meantime if you want to know where I'm going to be near you and when uh, it will be in November uh, end of October and November is when I'm there uh, but just drop me an email it's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk I would love to come and say hello so uh, back to Ayanna and this is me asking her about productivity and uh, in particular about her own productivity secrets I don't think I have secrets. Okay, what are, you, what are your public knowledge? <laughs> My public knowledge. <laughs> I really like list making, mm. and I think that for me, writing down things the night before or right when I get up in the morning, before I'm really ready to do what I need to do, just visualizing it and putting it down on a piece of paper and putting the bullets down and saying, okay, so for Quill Shift, I need to do these four things. For Tanglewood, I need to do these five things uh, today. That's what I want to do. And ultimately, like I probably don't get to do all of them. I don't get to have that very satisfying crossed off the list moment for every single point. But just to have a plan is really important to me. And that kind of goes through my philosophy of life. Like I really like having a plan. I really like having goals, long-term goals that I can get to. Yeah. So being able to visualize it and then breaking it down into steps and saying, here's how I'm going to get there. It makes everything a lot easier to do. And when you do your early morning planning or your end of the day planning, do you do that for Quill Shift and Tanglewood together? Or do you sort of do that for Quill Shift first? And then once you start Tanglewood, you do the planning for Tanglewood. You do it all in one go. I do it all in one go yeah. because there, I mean, it's all in my mind and because I'm, it's both publishing and it's, you know, both children's books and things. I know what I need to get done for, for both roles. And so I just put it, you know, the list is on the same sheet of paper, but, um, you know, sometimes the Tanglewood stuff comes first because those are the first things that pop in my head or sometimes Quill Shift comes first. Um, but usually, you know, in the morning, the first thing I do is work on Quill Shift in the very early morning. So those are the things that I get to cross off first on the list and then feel good about it and say, okay, I've, ac- I've already accomplished this stuff. Great. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> So it's like 8.30 and you, I love the fact that by 8.30 a.m. you've already done like half a day's work. Yes, <laughs> it's yes, like, it's great. That's going to be kind of motivating in <laughs> itself, I guess. Also what, timers. 
I time myself. Oh, do you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, do you use Pomodoro? Is that a thing for you? Or? <laughs> I use my cell phone okay. and, the, and the timer function on my cell phone. But you know the Pomodoro technique, which is like 25 minutes. So you do a 25 minute mm-hmm. sort of break, sort of period of time, and then you have a five minute break, and then you come back and do another 25. Is it? I is have it that tried kind of to do that. Yeah. And I don't work very well in that way. I think I, when I say I time myself, I say, okay, this task it's going to be 20 minutes and I better be done with this task in 20 minutes and I'm moving on. So I, you know, give myself that restriction and I know that I need to stick to it because I've got all these other things I need to do. So Mm. I need to be efficient in that 20 minutes to get this task done. So you're like a bit of a, like your, your own Sergeant major in that respect. You're like, okay, 20 minutes, let's go, let's do this. So you're Mm -hmm. kind of self motivating in that way. What are the times when you need to not be the Sergeant major, but be be your own (laughs) counselor instead? Like what are the times where you need to have the kind of self care side of productivity versus the strictness? That's when yoga comes in. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, and that's and that's where the the close friends and family come in. If uh, I am to the point now where I know when I'm getting run down, and I know when I'm feel I'm feeling discouraged, mm. and really when you feel discouraged, I feel like is when at least for me I feel the the least efficient because I'm just kind of running around in circles, and um, you know the the nagging or the negativity happens, and if I'm not happy, then I'm not going to do my best work and do it in a productive manner. So um, during those times is when I kind of step out and get a coffee or I take morning walks. Um, I'm very close to Central Park, so it's getting up and going for a walk in Central Park and clearing my head and and being near nature in New York and taking big, deep breaths um, and then coming back inside Mm. or, you know, starting to do yoga pretty regularly in the morning to start my day in kind of a peaceful state, but also getting the exercise in because you're happy when you exercise. So making sure that 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 stuff is worked out and I don't feel like I'm, I'm being a lesser version of myself in other areas while trying to be so good in, in another. Yeah. Um, and I think it's definitely true that happiness fuels productivity, not the other way around. So many people try to do, productivity well to get to it oh this will make me happy this will be the thing that and it's it is just the other way around isn't it it is happiness first and then the motivation and the productivity that comes off the back of that um i love the fact that you just have central park on your doorstep (laughs) so do uh, i (laughs) that's pretty cool how often in a week do you think that would happen where you get those moments of realizing oh right i really need to just step out here i'm getting discouraged i'm feeling tired i really feel like i need to recharge and Mm -hmm. and sort of change the view a little bit and do something different how often in a week would that happen i think Historically, um, that might have happened like two times a week, but and 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 that didn't count like the yoga that I was doing in the morning. But now, you know, I've started a new job, so I am I'm super excited and I'm motivated, and I have when I have projects, I am in a very happy state because I have the project and I know it needs to be done and I'm taking these steps and I'm seeing progress. And if I'm not, then I can, you know, twist it in a certain way. Um, and, and so when I'm figuring out a problem like that, I'm just jazzed. Mm. (laughs) So I haven't, I haven't had those kind of states of, I need to go out and take a break and clear my head recently. Um, and I just came back from Germany for a two-week kind of vacation, so that I'm sure has something to do with it. Cool. Where were you in Germany? <laughs> um, I was in northwestern Germany, so I we I went through um, 
Hamburg and I went down to Aachen where my fiance did his masters and we did Stuttgart and then we cool. did Munich. It was lovely. Lovely. And lots of trees and forests. Oh and my gosh. Yeah. So much green. <laughs> it, it reminded me a little bit of Illinois and the fact right. that it's very flat hmm. and there are so many trees. I've never seen a tree farm before and I saw so many tree farms um, where we were, which was very cool. I'm used to corn and soybeans. So that was a nice change. Big open skies. It was beautiful. So I think change the view is always a good uh, motto in productivity generally. Um, you mentioned something a minute ago about in the work that you're doing, it's about trying to be, did you say the best version of you or the most full-on version of you? Yeah. And then how that can sometimes affect the version of you in other areas of life. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what do you feel like you're missing out on by, because you could just do what lots of other people do and just say, I'm, I've got a full-time job. That pays my bills. <laughs> That's it. And then you could just stop there. And then, you know, like uh, in the evenings, you could, you could just, you know, watch TV. And in the mornings, you could have sleep. And it sounds appealing, right? It does. <laughs> good... Are there things that you feel a sense of loss around because you have that motivation? And, and what are they? I, I feel like in New York and in so many other places, there's a fear of missing out, right? So for me, it's fear of missing out on the adventures that my friends are having and the places they're going and the dinner parties that they're doing and, you know, the vacations that they get to go on. And, um, I'm like, I don't have those experiences, but then I think about it. And I'm like, I do. I, as long as I'm a good friend, um, then I will still have those connections where it might not be today or tomorrow that I can just drop things and spontaneously go and do that. But we can plan our time together and I can make sure that I'm present in that time. Mm. I think that's the big one, not being a good friend, not being a good daughter or a good sister because I'm so focused on my projects and I don't ever want to get so wrapped up, fiance, I don't ever want to get so wrapped up in my goal of, you know, changing the industry in this way or, you know, changing one child's life because they picked up a book that I had something to do with to get them to that work or helping the author publish that work. It reached that child's hands and it changed their life. Um, that's my goal. You know, I want to help spark a love of reading and kids, um, because it was so important to me as a child, but I don't want to do that while also, um, ruining really important relationships. Right. And are there times where you felt that that is what's happening? I've never gotten to that point. There's been, there, there was a recent, um, incident where I really wanted to go and support a friend who was moderating a panel and I was at my full-time job and I was, you know, working really, really hard and I did cool shift in the morning and I was stuck in a meeting and I was just furious because I hadn't seen this friend in so long. I knew that this was really, really important to her. It was really important that I be there for her. And, um, I just, beat myself up for the rest of the evening being like, I, I can't be that friend. Like mm. I, this is not okay. This is very important to me as well. So how am I going to balance to make sure that this doesn't happen? Um, and it, you know, it just clicked for me in that moment that this friendship and my other relationships are really important and I can't, um, neglect them mm. and I need to do everything in my power not to, because they're the things that keep me sane. I loved your thing about when 
you know, it might take some scheduling and it might mm-hmm. take some work or whatever. But then when I'm with that friend or with my fiance or whatever, I'm going to be present with them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you do that. What's the, what's, are there some things that you do just before you get there? Or like, you know, what, what's, what's your sort of um, secret to sort of turning off all of that <laughs> other outside stuff to be present? Because mm-hmm. that can be really hard if you've just come from a really stressful day or a stressful meeting or right. you're thinking about 10,001 other things. How do you get to that state of being present in, the, in those moments? That's a great question. Um, the phones need to to leave the vicinity, like they need to be put in the purse or, you know, not on the table or something. Um, and I, there might be some venting, <laughs> there might be some, you know, word vomiting, getting stuff out of the way, but then... If, and to whom? Because you're, like, you're working at home. Right, I'm working at yeah. home. So when I, when I, um, when we make that time yeah. and we're in that space together, wherever we are, if it's a coffee shop or if they've come to visit me, you know, in my apartment, I'm making them dinner. Um, that's really always wonderful. The cooking and, you know, drinking wine and catching up, um, that coziness of being in the kitchen and being mm. intimate. I love those types of situations, but it can be anywhere and just being like the phones are away. Um, and I could be kind of telling them what's going on or something that I'm so stressed about. But then I catch myself if I'm talking too much, if I hear my voice too much, then I ha- I shut off and I say, okay, you tell me about X, Y, and Z. I really want to hear about this. And the subject switches um, so that it's about them and it's about our time together instead of it's about me and my concerns and my stress. Mm. And it's always that sort of fine line between you don't want to sort of dominate the conversation in that way, but then also... Uh, the other person who who's catching up with you after a long time wants to know what's going on. Yes, and they want to yes. know the thing, so that always becomes like a, a difficult thing. And I think cooking's an interesting one, isn't it? In the sense of like when you're sat there chopping up vegetables together and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's like it, it's a very feels like a very grounding sort of experience, right? Like it's and it's out of being cerebral and into doing something practical. And- exactly. Yes. When I was. Um, doing the beginning of my business and I was creating all these things and trying to figure out all of these things and I was getting stressed and my mom said, Ayana, just, just cook yourself a meal. And I did and it worked. It, it brought me out of uh, the kind of hole I was in of all of the details and had me focus on one activity that I love to do um, and I love to do with people, although my small apartment in New York and small kitchen doesn't allow me to have a lot of people in the kitchen at one time, um, it, it's always a, a grounding activity. It's always mm-hmm. a calming activity. Um, and even if I'm doing it by myself and I have you know, my my tablet up and I'm watching a show while I'm I'm cooking it's still for me which is really nice yeah and I, I will often if I I don't actually cook that much but when, it, when I'm cooking with a you know watching a tablet in the background mm-hmm. or whatever I quite like that but I also really like just sometimes just mindful cooking do you know what I mean mm. just like uh, sometimes making that conscious decision to switch the tablet off yes. and then go right I'm just gonna I'm now chopping <laughs> and then, you know now my eyes are do you narrate well not not out loud but it's quite good to narrate that stuff in your head maybe that's just me maybe that's mm-hmm. uh, just me being a crazy person or whatever <laughs> but like, I do quite like that thing of okay now it's the onion and now it's that and just kind of mm-hmm. uh, commentary in your head yes <laughs> I've, I've definitely I probably do that and I hum 
when okay. I'm I, when I'm happy or content, I do I do hum. And so um, I tell people who haven't eaten with me for the first time um, that you know I'm I'm really excited about this meal. So if I start humming, like don't <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> so is that like a barometer for you? Like if you're humming that means happiness it means you're mm-hmm. in a good spot and you're feeling present and relaxed and stuff. yes and mm-hmm. for my brother he loves singing so for me whenever i heard my brother singing i knew that he was happy and he was good and he was in his own little world mm. tell me about happiness what does happiness mean to you this was the question that i was most afraid you're going to ask because i don't necessarily <laughs> have an answer to it i think for me happiness is having a challenge that I can wrap my, my mind around um, and be able to do something about being active in that. I think happiness is being around and appreciating my friends and family. And when I say appreciating, being conscious of the gifts that they give me uh, and expressing that gratitude. I always feel like I should be expressing more gratitude. And I think about it and sometimes I'll do the text or sometimes I'll do the call randomly, but I always wanna do more because I think about how amazing the people I have around me are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so showing that gratitude makes me very happy and making sure that they, they know how much they mean to me makes me very happy. Happiness means having long-term goals and figuring out how I can accomplish them Happiness means to me um, helping people reach their goals as well. Hmm. And that, I find that really interesting. And it's something that's been coming up as a theme a lot just on this podcast is that happiness is having the goal, not meeting the goal. So when do you, do you think you'll be happy when you're done and what does done look like with like when quilt shift is finished when quilt, <laughs> when quilt shift has done its work so well that it no longer needs to exist what does that look like for you i don't think there's done and i i it's very perceptive of you to to pick up that there was never a meeting the goal there was always having goals mm. and, and and striving i like like i said i like challenges and i like puzzles and I like figuring out how things fit um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the puzzle is ever finished I think that there are so many different ways that the publishing industry can tackle the lack of diversity issue um, and I think quill shift is just one and it might it, it might not be the right one but it, it is certainly an avenue and I'm still figuring out exactly where it fits. I mean, I have um, diverse interns that I bring in who I am showing the insides of the publishing industry to and getting them excited about entering. And that's an avenue to help uh, bring in more diverse books into the world. I am representing uh, diverse and inclusive authors who are writing you know, inclusive stories, and that's another way. Uh, but I'm still morphing and changing and figuring out what is the what is the best way to do what I'm doing and therefore there's never a, an end <laughs> mm. yeah and I think just that idea of being motivated by the goal the pursuit of it is it feels more energizing than like thinking about what that would look like if you got to an end right. point an end point feels almost 
like you get to the end of the rainbow and you go, oh, yeah, that's that it. Right? That's exactly like, like oh, at yeah. the end. <laughs> um, so what do you, if you think about what an end point might look like and that being really difficult to come across, do you have a set of criteria in mind for what makes you successful? And like, do you, you know, do you have sort of metrics around that and are there certain goals in your head that are very sort of, you know, driven by the numbers and driven by the, the success or the growth that you want to have with CoolShift? Mm. I was talking to one of my fiance's good friends in Germany when we were there, and he had just taken a trip to New Zealand, and he had, he had lived there for a year, um, did odd jobs, was, you know, finding himself again after finishing uh, this very stressful master's program. And so we were talking about what success meant, and um, we were talking about values. And during my time in Germany, it was very kind of refreshing because I was outside of New York, I was outside of the pressure of the go, 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 of the, you know, well, this person's doing this and that person's accomplishing this. I'm like, <laughs> where am I in this? And oh my gosh, it's so stressful. And really coming back to why did I start? What value do I want to bring in this venture? And am I doing that? And then I thought to myself, you know what, if I can, if I can get one book published a year that features, you know, a diverse cast of characters or it has a diverse protagonist or is supporting um, a writer from um, an underrepresented background, then I'm successful. I'm getting those books out there. I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. Mm. So it's, it's, I think for me, success is making sure that I'm always focusing on on that that value system that I have of being that change and if I'm continuing to strive to it and I'm keeping hold of that importance and not well I didn't sell 15 books this you know year and you know I wasn't invited to X conference and these people didn't quote me in this article then I'm 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 losing sight mm. I really am uh, the outside social pressure is is deafening um, and so putting kind of the blinders and the earmuffs on and just saying like why am I doing this in the first place and why was this really important to 10 year old Ayana is um, is what's making me feel like every day I'm succeeding yeah I certainly have that same experience when so I you know being in New York for me is a place where you know my company is less well known my book is less well known and you I certainly have that sort of imposter syndrome I have oh, it all the time but I, it definitely really the volume turns up on it when, <laughs> when I'm somewhere that's new and where it's like I'm bringing this to people almost like for, for the first time it's like almost like being back at the beginning mm -hmm. of my business you know now that I'm seven years in and the book's two or three years in and I know it's just it can be a really um it can be flooring can't it like oh my really, gosh um, demoralizing yeah demoralizing and, and just it can really be very stifling in terms of letting those thoughts like overcome you and mm -hmm. it just becomes something that holds you back right. like how do you deal with that and what's your what's your inner what's your inner monologue around that when when times are really tough Gosh, they're always on like a, a slow burn. <laughs> there's there's always the the thoughts nagging at me that like, oh, why didn't you do this? Or oh, you know that person's doing that, and you're not you're not good enough. Or that imposter syndrome that is so very real. And I think the thing that keeps me going is that 
I know my background. I know why I started to do this. Um, I have people who believe in me and trust me and I trust myself and I trust mm. my instincts and that needs to be enough because no one else is going to tell me any different. So I need to believe in myself. And if I don't believe in myself, then no one else will. So I might as well just kind of shut those voices in a closet somewhere and get on with it. And they might sneak out every now and then, but it's just kind of having the, the willpower to put them back where they belong and keep moving. And, but what's the willpower there? Because you say that like, I might as well believe in myself. It's like, yeah, you can say that, but then when but the voices the do sneak out. It's outside, you know, it's, it's having those wonderful counselors around me and mentors, mm. peer mentors and people in the publishing industry who have been at this for so much longer than I have and, and listening to their counsel and then saying, you know, they believe in me enough and really like, I'm pretty cool. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> like, this is pretty cool what I'm doing and going back to 10 year old Ayana and 17 year old Ayana and what would they think about what you're doing right now? And they would think you are awesome. So keep at it. And that fear of failure has always kind of driven me to try and do and be my best. But I also have to realize that, you know, fear only gets you so far and, um, failure really isn't bad. So if for some reason I fail and this venture of mine doesn't succeed in the way that I want it to, that's okay. I'm still kind of get coming to grips with that um, in my mind all the time, but it's okay because it's a learning experience. Well, you're coming to grips in your mind with what if it does yes. fail? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. all the more. time. I, there, in the publishing industry, there have been a lot of startups recently, um, a lot of digital startups that have come and made a big splash and people were excited and there seemed to be support. But then, you know, a year or two in, they kind of disappeared. They, you know, dispersed. And that was really sad to see because I want the publishing industry to be, you know, shooken up. I want new ideas to come in. I want new voices to be heard um, because I'm a new voice. And so I see these really smart, amazing people doing these things and it not working out, but then also seeing them go off and do other new, great, amazing things. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to die. <laughs> no one's going to perish if Quill Shift doesn't go big, you know, and, and explode and have 70 authors under its belt within the next two years and popping out bestsellers. Like that's fine. And I'm not quite sure that's exactly what I wanted to do anyway. Um, if it, for some reason kind of does a, a slow death somewhere, <laughs> then I know that in the time that I had it and the time that I was nurturing all these amazing interns that are, you know, going to Columbia and gotten to MFA programs and had this rich experience, the authors that I've worked with to kind of nurture them and get them to a place where they understand the publishing industry more and understand why their novels succeeded or where they needed more work and can build upon that. You know, I've made differences. Hmm. So... Those are things that Quill Shift, perhaps not being that huge success, you know, th those experiences can't be taken away from me. And is that, I think that's really important to see it as along that journey, I'm making that difference, even if it's not built as big as I want it to be right now, even if it's not, I have the numbers that I don't want to have right now, 
but realizing that yeah like this is changing stuff exactly. right now um, and you said something there about the the fear of failure can only get you so far mm-hmm. what takes you past that and what what drives is the next level <laughs> for me the fear of failure was um, was what pushed me to do a lot of things and to to take chances and to kind of just jump um, and prove myself and, and others wrong that like I can do this uh, but then after you take that initial jump and saying like haha see I did it like that fear of failure is not going to propel you to do well <laughs> and mm. so then you need to learn and you need to talk to people and you need to continue to be curious and you need to continue to be humble so that um, you can make whatever you're doing work and mm. and that's why I've learned that I need to continue to reach out and uh, make sure that I, you know, I showcase that I don't know everything and I'm still willing to learn and I'm still trying to be the best version of myself. Do you feel like it's important in, maybe in your industry particularly, but just in general, like, do you think it's important to have this public face of everything's uber successful and of course I'm not thinking about failure and, you know, everything's going wonderfully well. Or do you think there's the ability for you to be more vulnerable and be more honest and open with people in, you know, in terms of how that then, how that then plays out with like your reputation and the business's reputation? I think that first one is, um, what you said was kind of spot on. I don't see a lot of people showcasing their vulnerabilities, uh, in this industry and particularly in agenting. I think that it's, you know, look at this success and look at this success and, you know, look what I've got over here and look at this shiny object over there. Um, and no, you don't hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, that sucked. And, you know, I screwed that one up big time when you, you know, go and talk to people at parties and, you know, they want to know what you've sold and they want to know, like, tell, tell them about your successes. Yeah, and what are your numbers? Exactly. So, like, what are you struggling yeah. with and, you know, how, how can I help type of thing? So there are definitely wonderful people in the industry who are supportive like that. And I think just in general, publishing is a fairly supportive community, um, but that kind of public, everything's fine, is very much a, a part of it. Mm. And have you had days where that's felt really difficult to do? Yes. Do you know what I mean? When it's, I know personally, like, you know, if I'm having a really hard day and then I have to stand up and go, oh, everything's so wonderful and whatever. I, I definitely say yes to that. Um, but then you just have to kind of think, okay, well, everything is not as bad as you think it is. <laughs> yeah. And there are, there are a lot of good things that I can be thankful for. And so in this moment, you know, I'm going to be very thankful for them. So just before we finish, what would you do if you were in like a parallel universe and you weren't doing this, but you would do something totally different? I'd love to know what that is. And I think, I I think the reason that question feels like a good one to ask you is that it feels like what you're doing is, it's very mission driven. Like you're all in, in terms of your day job and you know the day job and then quill shift and there's a real kind of passion that's like linked to your identity so I'm kind of wondering what your uh, like what your sense of identity would be if it wasn't publishing and if it wasn't being an agent and if it wasn't this side of things like would it be something totally different like is there something else that you dream of doing (laughs) I I really haven't dreamed of doing anything except for being a part of the publishing industry. Really? Yeah. And <laughs> there is there short periods of time when, you know, I was 
playing tennis. I used to play a lot of tennis and be on the tennis team. And I was like, oh, maybe I can be like Serena and Venus Williams and play tennis. And I was like, no, actually, no, that's never going to happen. Um, and then there were times when I was in the kitchen with my mom and I, I really love to cook and I really love the smells of the kitchen and I really love the interaction that you have with the food and with the people that you're serving the food to. And I was like, maybe I'll be a chef. But yeah, that's probably not the, the best environment for me either. So it's really hard for me to think about what I would do outside of publishing. And as you said, my identity is very much wrapped up in this world. Um, most likely, I would be a librarian. Hmm. <laughs> and we're, it's, that's a nice uh, segue. <laughs> we're, we're sat here in, uh, in New York Public Library right now, which is quite fun. Um, so, yeah, I think I just want to say thank you for uh, spending this time. And it's uh, 4.15 on a Friday afternoon. So we're actually both going to, it's just going to start the weekend. Oh, yeah. Right now, which is cool. <laughs> So what what is the what does the weekend look like for you? Are you back to work early tomorrow morning? <laughs> like what, what what's your plan over the next couple of days? Yeah, so I, I will be doing some some quill shift things uh, very soon, um, and I have a jazz show that I'm going to see tomorrow night. Oh, cool. So what I about? love jazz. Um, I believe it's in the East Village. Okay. And then I've been at Smalls this week. Had a couple of nights. At, do you know Smalls? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Very nice. Oh, well, let's talk about this off the. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and then um, I have a feeling it's going to be gorgeous. So Sunday morning, I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing a, a walk in, yeah. in Central Park. So Central Park walk, jazz, work, <laughs> everything else. So it feels like you've got a really nice uh, balance and some really, well, certainly as someone with a mixed race toddler as well, I can really relate to the goals that you have being important ones as well. So uh, really inspiring to talk to you and thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So that's it for Ayanna and that's it for series one of Beyond Busy. I would love to know your thoughts and feedback and uh, who you'd like as a guest and questions that you have about productivity or about some of these different topics that we've been talking about. So Graham at Think Productive co.uk and at Graham Alcott on Twitter as well. I'm really loving doing this and definitely committed to doing lots more episodes of it as well. Uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks off and then come back at the end of August, August with series two. Uh, so until then, thanks again to Anna. And if you want to find out more about her, it's quillshift.com. Uh, you can also find her on LinkedIn. Uh, thanks also to Shara from Icon Books in New York, who put me in touch with Anna and also... Uh, just really looked after me really well. She was very new into the job at Icon uh, when I was over there in New York, but really looked after me and uh, uh, made sure that trip was a real success. So thanks to Sharon. Look, looking forward to uh, seeing her and seeing New York again real soon. Thanks also to Mark Stedman from Bloomsbury Digital for producing the show and really for for guiding me through this world of podcasting over the last uh, few weeks. It kind of is at the end of term now, like I'm kind of talking uh, like we're not coming back in like three weeks time or whatever. Uh, but yeah, uh, thanks to Mark for just being a really uh, great mentor around podcasting and really helping me to navigate my, my way through all this stuff. Um, you can find out Liz more, you can get show notes, everything else at getbeyondbusy.com and you can find out more about my work at graymalcott.com and at thinkproductive.com. 
www.co.uk and thinkproductive.com. Um, as I say, we're going to take a short break and be back at the end of August with Series 2. And until then, thanks for tuning in to Beyond Busy. And if you haven't checked out all the episodes, they are all there on getbeyondbusy.com and on iTunes and everywhere else. So now is your chance to do a little bit of kind of uh, back episode listening and catch up and be ready for Series 2 to begin. And until then, take care. Bye for now. Thank you.